Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 56, Waxing Wusha. That's right. We're returning to something we uh, kind of stumbled upon in the uh, World Tour series last summer, and we talked about doing a King Who episode, but we kind of wanted to widen the range of Wuxia films that we covered. So we're doing a theme week instead of a director week, and we're talking about a collection of Wuxia films, um, which was a very exciting set of movies to watch. Yeah, uh, these movies are like fantasy and martial arts, so you've got a mix of skill and visual effects, and it just turns into this crazy and action-packed adventure movies uh, that's just a ton of fun to watch. Right, and quick disclaimer before we get into it, because uh, this is going to be, I mean, and this will be pretty obvious anyway, but, you know, Chinese is a tonal logographic language that has been transliterated into the Latin alphabet for a couple of tone-deaf film majors, so please, please forgive us the mistakes in pronunciation that we are about to make. Um, We are sorry, we are doing our best, uh, but our best is not up to snuff. Um, but before we talk about the movies we're going to talk about today, let's talk about wuxia because wuxia is a genre and it's a fairly old genre as well. Um, so translated into English, it essentially means martial hero. And that's what it is at its uh, foundation is it's a martial arts film. And it's essentially the, the Chinese version of a fantasy epic. So think knights in shining armor and dragon slaying, but you know, in China instead of in Europe. So following along uh, the the kind of chivalry, uh, archetypical hero types, uh, Wuxia tends to follow what's uh, called the eight attributes of Sha, uh, benevolence, justice, individualism, loyalty, courage, truthfulness, disregard for wealth, and desire for glory. And we're not going to use that as any kind of structure for the episode, but that is kind of just to set the tone of what we're dealing with here. is kind of these grand legendary heroes um, that we're going to be talking about this week, or in us one of the, our movies this week, more or less deconstructing, which is fascinating. Um, and of course, you know, Wuxia is old, like I already said. It has its roots in something called Yusha, uh, which translates to wandering vigilante, or like wandering hero. And those stories date back in China to somewhere around the third century BCE. So this is a very, very old story style, a very old genre that has just now been put into uh, a film format within, you know, like the past 120 years or so. So uh, using modern technology to tell a style of story that's been around for millennia. Um, But what Speaking of stories, what are the specific stories we're going to be talking about this week, Jonathan? So we're starting off with uh, Dragon Inn from 1967. Uh, This is our King Who film for the week, uh, who, again, we saw with a touch of Zen back at the end of our world tour. Uh, And this kind of uh, revitalized, like, Wuxia has always been a very uh, popular literary genre, but King Who is one of the major figures in bringing that popularity to the screen and Dragon Inn was the first one that really got a lot of attention uh, and then he kind of culminated that in his magnum opus A Touch of Zen. Right, right. And the next film we're going to talk about is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon from uh, the year 2000 directed by Ang Lee. Um, and this is based off of the fourth novel in a Wuxia series um, 
by an author by the name of Wang Dulu. Uh, and the name of the novel is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And this one uh, cleaned up at the Oscars fairly well, winning four uh, for Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, Best Set Decoration, and Best Foreign Language Film uh, from Taiwan. Yeah, and this is actually the second time we've seen Ang Lee on the podcast. Back in episode four, we saw uh, The Life of Pi. Uh, Ang Lee was a very versatile director. Um, and we're wrapping up this week with House of Flying Daggers from 2004. I really don't want to try and say this director's name because I know I will butcher it. Um, but it was nominated for Best uh, Cinematography and uh, is also a very popular wuxia film. Uh, very modern, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really pretty to look at. Uh, and we'll have a lot to say about the cinematography when we get to that film. Uh, I will attempt the director's name real quick. Uh, Yimo. Oh, my gosh. Yimo. <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying. Yimo Zhang. <laughs> Yeah, Yimu Zeng, uh, just roughly. So our first movie of the week is Dragon Inn from 1967, the King Hu film. Um, and this one takes place uh, in China, uh, in ancient China, probably some somewhere in the past two millennia. Um, not modern, though. And it takes place in the fallout of a political battle between a General Yu and uh, a chief advisor eunuch. Um, I'm not entirely sure what his mode of power is, but the point is that he's powerful. Uh, they make that very clear at the top of the film. He's got this giant secret police force, um, and also at the top of the, fi- uh, top of the film, uh, his, his rival, the General Yu, is executed. And he, uh, the eunuch, wants General Yu's uh, sons and daughters killed. They are currently fleeing to the border of uh, China to try to get out of the country and get to safety. And he sends his secret police after him. The secret police chase him down and try to kill the sons and daughters. But they are stopped by um, by some wuxia fighters, uh, some of these heroes, uh, who we don't really we don't really get an explanation for him. But we will see them later on in the movie. Um, and our plot kind of makes its way to this place called the Dragon Inn, which is out on the western reaches of China, out in kind of like the deserty era area of China, um, which kind of gives this whole film kind of like this western uh, style vibe to it. Um, yeah, just because it it's very this, almost yeah. Yojimbo or a fistful of dollars. Yeah, yeah, very you know wind blown, wind strewn desert. All of the fighting happens in and around this one one inn out there, the Dragon Inn. Um, and so our, we, we have everybody fleeing here. We have the, uh, the, the refugees, essentially, the sons and daughters of this general fleeing to the inn. We have the secret police fleeing to the inn. Um, and they take over the inn. But after they take over the inn, um, <clears throat> this, this wandering hero guy, who you will recognize if you've watched A Touch of Zen before, um, shows up uh, looking for the owner of the inn. Uh, who and I'm just going to kind of skip ahead to some plot reveals here because um, it's just kind of necessary. I don't need to build the tension. Uh, yeah, you're <laughs> in these movies for the wuxia, not for the uh, twist endings or anything. Right, 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 right. We spend half the movie being told that this one uh, actor who is clearly a woman uh, is pretending to be a man. 
And that happens in several of these. And that, I don't know, it's a like very how, common trope. Yeah, I don't know how important like just clothing is for assuming someone's gender. But yeah, it was not very deceptive towards the audience, which is probably intentional, though, just to keep things clear in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't 100 percent understand it, but it's a very common trope. Um, this kind of weird de- deception that happens, which considering the uh, the morals that I listed out or the the tenets for um, for Wuxia films earlier about like truthfulness kind of countermands that. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess it works for the plot. It makes it slightly more dramatic. So why not? You know. Anyway. Um, we have our heroes starting to collect at the end. The first one to arrive is um, this guy who we've seen from the Touch of Zim before. He is a master uh, martial arts guy, but he fights with like an umbrella sword. So it does have a sword in it, but he only fights with the umbrella portion of it 90% of the time. <laughs> uh, and he kind of shows down with um, with uh, the the um, secret police who are there and they're all kind of pretending that they don't know who the, who the other party is. And, um, but they really do know it makes for a lot of fun filled tension and misdirection and action and secret plots that go back and forth. But anyway, the reason this martial arts hero guy is here is he's been asked here by the owner of the end. The owner of the end is also a martial arts expert, but he was also, also uh, a lieutenant of the general Yu, who is trying to help general Yu's uh, um, now orphaned children uh, get across the border. Um, so he's, he's going to meet them here at the end. Uh, we also have two other characters show up, and these were the two characters who we saw help uh, General Yu's fleeing children uh, towards the very start of the film. And they present as two brothers, um, but of course this is a brother and a sister, um, and they are the son and daughter of another one of General Yu's lieutenants. Uh, so we have a lot of people who are connected in one way or another to uh, General Yu, who are trying to protect his kids, and we have the secret police, and we have this setting out in the middle of the desert. Um, there's a lot of back and forth, obviously. Essentially, uh, past like maybe the 30 minute mark of the movie, it's like one continual battle, sort of. Um, right. There's a raid on the inn, and you know, then they get all routed out, and then there's a big showdown. Yeah, yeah. Though we, I mean, we get breaths, we get moments to react to relax between bouts of the fight, but. Really, it's kind of just an all-out battle for uh, the Dragon Inn. Um, and of course, eventually we get to this point where we fled the inn and we're getting close to the border and the eunuch is tracking them down. And of course, the eunuch is a grandmaster too. He has the same powers that the jaguar from the first Kung Fu Panda has. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so just just throwing that out there because of course kung fu panda is inspired by wuxia films i mean it kind of is a wuxia film it just seems odd to consider it as such since it's an american animated film um, as for a younger uh demographic yes yes although adults can enjoy kung fu panda too i mean <laughs> jack black is a natural national treasure so um so there's that even even in panda form he does very very well um, but that's essentially the plot of Dragon Inn. As you can see, it is 
kind of MacGuffin-y. Like, we don't spend a lot of time in with political intrigue or the morality of what's going on. We, we have a very clear sense of who the good guys are, um, and those are the, our heroes that we follow. The, uh, the sons and daughters of General Yu are... You know, technically the good guys, although they're kind of just treated as victims throughout the course of the the movie, they don't really have any personality. They're just color coded people who are running away. Um, and then, of course, we know who the bad guys are: the secret police um, and the eunuch with the weird uh, nerve dampening powers. Uh, and we just kind of get them all into the same place through a well-motivated but simple plot and have them fight it out. And it works. It's great. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, like you're saying, it's kind of, it's not super deep, but, you know, there's enough. It's like a straight kind of adventure movie, even though there's not like a long span of distance that it takes place over. But, you know, there's a goal. The characters are trying to get to this goal and they're constantly frustrated and having to overcome these obstacles and characters that are trying to stop them. And essentially what elevates it is the style and flair and humor also that goes into this. This is actually pretty, there's a lot of comedy thrown into this, especially at the beginning when uh, our main hero is, um, you know, figuring out that all these people at this inn are not just normal people hanging out and they're actually trying to kill him and poison him and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of back and forth where he's, sharper than they are and much more skillful than like everybody uh, except for our grandmaster eunuch. Um, so just, you know, that's a lot of the draw of these movies is the flair that they're able to bring to the way that the conflicts get um, dealt with. And I mean, how do you bring flair to a sword fight other than just, you know, adding this element of flying essentially and, uh, and just all these other crazy things like sword tricks and all kinds of stuff. That's just, you know, it's unreal, but it's visually pleasing. And uh, as the as the genre progresses, I think it becomes much more smooth. Um, and, uh, you know, technology helps these effects work. But it's interesting watching it here at the beginning and seeing a lot of these practical effects like we saw with a touch of Zen with trampoline jumping and uh and stuff like that, but it's still just like really entertaining. I love the trampolines personally. I almost prefer yeah, they're the awesome. Tra- yeah, I almost prefer the trampolines to the wires, because um, it it kind of forces a really creative use of editing, and that's something I noticed in all three of these movies. But especially when you're doing such uh, kind of ground level uh, visual effects, practical visual effects. Uh, your editing has to be really creative in order to sell it, and King Hu knows how to do that. That's right. That's right. Um, I think I also like the trampolines just because um, it's almost like a more grounded form of the flying. And, of course, if you're really into the fantasy of these wuxia films, then I get why you'll like the flywires and the CGI flying. Um but yeah, there's but something, with trampolines, there's something, gravity still exists. Yeah, gravity still exists. The the way people move feels, you know, natural on screen, even though they're re- bouncing ridiculously high. There's something about it that doesn't feel um, completely fantastical. It feels kind of real, and it fits in with the the you know the very 1960s cinema look of the film. The very heavy makeup that they use almost like a Powell and Pressburger level of heavy makeup um, almost caked onto the faces. It just gives the whole thing this very theatrical flair that makes it very, very fun to watch. 
Yeah. And also the cinematography and all of these. And I mean, the, the cinematography in a touch of Zen blew me away. And I mean, King who still did that here. Uh, and you've got these beautiful night scenes. And uh, again, this like ver- vast barren desert that presents some really stark imagery when we get outside uh, and then culminating in our final scene at the end. That's like on this overhang with all these like mountains shrouded in fog in the background it's just a perfect way to uh like we've talked about before make your landscape kind of part of the like make it a character and part of the film that it really wouldn't be the same without it being in these locations yeah if you want to talk about it comparatively to a touch of zen um then the landscape character in a touch of zen is this um kind of wet bamboo forest jungly um, almost hot location in kind of maybe probably southern eastern China. Um, but it's very different than the hot, barren, windswept um, location that we have in Dragon Inn. And it gives the, the two different movies a very um, <clears throat> a very different feel, almost uh, almost oppositional in a way between the the the, the even just the color temperatures that you see between the two films yeah yeah so as we've been you know trying to talk through this movie again there's not a lot of like very specific deep like story things to get into um but it is interesting some of the the precedents that this movie sets um or just some things that it falls into that a lot of these other wuxia films do which is um first of all really strong like female uh fighters Um, And that becomes actually like plot points in uh, the next two movies. But just the fact that we have a brother and a sister. And again, the sister disguises herself as a man for a while. Um, But she's part of this, you know, this uh, warrior class um, that she holds her own with everyone else. Uh, And it's not really brought up a lot. But, you know, especially if you're in one of these period pieces, that is kind of a big deal is having... Uh, you know, the woman be this very tough and, uh, you know, what would traditionally be seen as a masculine role as far as being a warrior. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about this movie is that it doesn't try to explain any of the uh, the fantastical elements that a lot of fantasy movies do try to, you know, they put a lot of mumbo jumbo in there to explain it. Uh, Even like Star Wars, thinking about the Force, which kind of has some roots in uh, this wuxia genre and this idea of chi and some other things that I don't know enough about Chinese uh, mythology to get into too much. Um, But especially at the end of this movie, you've got our the Grandmaster Eunuch doing, uh, like you said, the uh, the tiger in uh, Kung Fu Panda is doing this pressure point thing where every time he hits someone. He kind of like touches them in different points on their neck and chest and uh, and then suddenly they they reel backwards and they're spurting blood out of their mouth. And you're like, whoa, what what just happened? But they don't explain that. It's whether that's supposed to be kind of implied in the culture and literature of this kind of story or whether it's like it just doesn't matter. And you just kind of roll with it and assume as you're going along. Um, I thought that was really interesting because. Uh, you know, like I said, a lot of other movies would try to explain that away. And I think that that would just kind of take away from the magic and enjoyment of this kind of movie. 
It really says something about our perception of uh, genre as a concept and the perception of wuxia as a genre in and of itself that we can just approach a genre knowing that it is part of that um, part of that type of film, part of that genre, and expect certain things, and that those things just work. Like in this, in a wuxia film, somebody having essentially superpowers, being able to fly, being able to paralyze somebody is totally normal. Now, if I was watching like um, a rom-com and somebody was suddenly like flying (laughs) around, I would have a lot of questions. Um, And it, you know, if we're going to take this to a place where, um, uh, where we talk about, you know, lessons you can take into your own filmmaking, this kind of goes into making your, your film make sense in the, in the world of whatever your film is. Um, so Dragon Inn makes sense in the Dragon Inn world, and that's all it needs to do. Needs to do. And it does that. Um, it's a wuxia world. Uh, it's a wuxia world. It sounds like a... <laughs> like man. a 90s children's show. Yeah, yeah. It's a wuxia world. Um, it makes sense within that context, and we don't need to explain it outside of that context. We can just run with it um, based on our preconceptions of the genre and go with it. Uh, and you kind of need to know what type of movie you're making and what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. Um, and if you if you do it right, you can get away with a lot. And I don't. If anybody follows me on Letterbox, you know I just watched uh, The Shape of Water like a week ago, um, and. Wow, that's a movie where you can get away with a lot in the context of uh, of of the movie you're watching. And Dragon Inn is a movie where you, another movie where you can get away with a lot in the context of the movie you're watching. Um, but again, if you were going to watch Dragon Inn, you would be shocked if suddenly people broke out in a musical number. Like that would be strange in a wuxia film. Um, yeah. But it wouldn't be strange in in the shape of water or in a Bollywood movie. You know, you gotta know the the type of movie you're making, and that's not to say they can't mix um, mix genres and and kind of blend what you're doing or push the boundaries of it. But you have to make sure that you have the credit to spend with um, with the audience. And if you're setting out to make a wuxia film, then you have you have credit to spend on wuxia stuff only. Yeah, and it's not to say that this is unprecedented in Dragon Inn. King Who didn't make this up. This is part of that culture. And I'll I'll include a link to a, a video essay that kind of explains a little bit more of the history of Wuxia because uh, even from some of the earliest Chinese films, like in the 20s, there were scenes of flying martial arts uh, battles and stuff like that. So, uh, and in the literature, like that's that's part of this genre even outside of film but us from a western context who don't have a lot of uh mythology like that can still enjoy it and we still believe it when we watch it uh even if it kind of takes a second for us to be like oh okay so that's what kind of movie this is but then once we've made that connection as long as we're consistent for the rest of the film we'll buy whatever you throw at us um, and I think that's really interesting as we transition into Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because this film is kind of one of the first wuxia films that made a big splash uh, in the West and kind of shocked people with the way that the flying and stuff worked like that. Um, 
because that's it's not something that we're used to seeing in martial arts films and, you know, stories of knights and stuff. Even if they're slaying a dragon, they're usually not flying. Only the dragon is flying. And we'll buy that. <laughs> All right. So let's get into Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, by Ang Lee in 2000. And uh, this story is much more uh, thematic. It has a lot more things going on uh, within the story uh, thematically that uh, we can draw out of it. So we start the film with these two legendary uh, martial arts masters who are already very established and very well known. Uh, one being Master Limu Bai and the other being Yushu, Yushu Len. And uh, these two meet up and uh, they have this conversation about this sword called the Green Destiny, uh, which belongs to uh, Limu Bai. But he is planning to uh, essentially kind of retire and settle, settle his life down a little bit. So he's going to give this to uh, a good friend of his, Governor Yu, as basically like a, a keepsake. Um, and this sword is as legendary as he is, you know, think Excalibur, like a sword that has its own legends to go along with it. Um, so they both go to Governor Yu's house and they're staying there for a little bit. And the sword is stolen like the night that it is put there. And so all of a sudden there is this chase to catch the thief as it's taking um, as he quote unquote, is, is stealing the sword. Um, and this name, Jade Fox, starts spreading around. And we get the impression that Jade Fox is a very, uh, you know, notorious person, also very skilled, um, but antagonistic to our main heroes. So as all this unfolds, we find out that Jade Fox was um, at the same uh training temple as Limu Bai was uh, called Wudan, but Wudan did not actually accept female uh, trainees or apprentices, and she was actually being used in a different way by the master uh, for pleasure and all that kind of stuff. Um, and she got fed up with it. She wanted to be trained, uh, but she's uh, illiterate and all this stuff, but she ended up learning some of these techniques and killed the master of the temple um, and then kind of went rogue. And so she has come and stolen the green destiny. And then we also find out that she has an apprentice. Um, and fairly early on, it's not really a, uh, spoiler to say that her apprentice is the daughter of general Yu, who has the sword and she has ended it's up glaringly obvious. Yeah. It's, it's again, the thief, is supposedly a man. They keep saying, get him, get him. But you can tell that it's it's a female. Um, so the General Yu's daughter, Jen Yu, uh, steals the sword, and we find out that she has surpassed uh, Jade Fox, who trained her, uh, and has become much better because she was actually able to read the Wudan manual that Jade Fox stole, but was never actually able to read and learn. Um, so through all this... Uh, Jen Yu ends up stealing the sword again and uh, escaping and, you know, going rogue on her own. And uh, we get this backstory with a, a love plot that she had in the desert many years before. Um, but really what what ends up going on throughout all of this is this conversation of uh, especially between Limu Bai and Yushu Lin about their status as legends and um, 
the idea of, you know, who's worthy to be trained and, uh, you know, what is the leg, what is their legacy and what is the legacy of, uh, martial arts and all that kind of stuff. Because Jen, Yu basically has learned all these things, but she's very brash and she just kind of shows it off for no reason. There's this whole bar brawl where she's the, uh, all these people come up to her and they're like, Hey, did you defeat Limu Bai? Which she didn't really, he, they kind of had a fight and then they left, but she didn't defeat him. And she's like, yeah, I, I beat him. Why do you care? They're like, can you train us? She's like, no. And then she beats up everyone at this bar. Um, and, uh, so she's very brash. Whereas Limu Bai is, you know, very much more your centered, uh, kind of like we saw in a touch of Zen, like very, um, uh, almost like Zen Buddhist, uh, ideology, very calm all the time. Uh, and so you're seeing like this impetuousness. He wants to train Jen and have her control her feelings, but she's too, uh, impetuous and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of thematic stuff that goes on and it's, it's, you know, you kind of have to dig into it a, a little bit in order to even just understand the ending. Cause it's, it's very vague, uh, but it's 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 interesting. I don't know how to wrap this up. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is kind of um, I think the the my big takeaway from this film was, uh, or at least the most interesting thing about it to me is that it kind of functions as a meta wuxia film um, because it is a wuxia film. I mean, it's dealing with these legends. It's got fights and flying and um near magical abilities and uh complex or well not complex but very dramatic um plots um <clears throat> but it also kind of takes a step back and analyzes um what it would mean to actually be a wuxia um fighter what it would mean to be a wuxia hero and i think that's actually redundant because wuxia means martial hero <laughs> so i said what would it mean to be a martial hero hero but you know what i mean um <clears throat> yeah and what is that toll yeah afterwards and, and after the fighting is over and we're taking that from from two different perspectives right we're taking it from these two characters who are older who have spent like their whole lives as uh, wuxia heroes and they kind of you can tell it, it's taken a toll on their it's lives kind of the unforgiven kind of, not, of wuxia movies yeah no that's exactly where i was going with it um it also reminds me a lot of this one scene in the magnificent seven uh which we talked about on this podcast way long back long ago um in which there are they are telling the young gun uh who wants to be a gunfighter but isn't quite a gunfighter yet uh, all of the reasons he shouldn't be a gunfighter. Um, right. And we have this tension in this film between between these two older wuxia fighters who have probably some, it seems like, a lot of regrets about how they've lived their lives. And, um, and this young, brash, bratty um, woman who is just on the, the cusp of becoming a wuxia fighter. Um, in, in a very negative way, you know, not holding up any really, really any of those noble tenets that we, we mentioned at the top of the podcast, but, um, but who's very ready and willing to just do her own thing. She wants to be independent. She doesn't want anyone telling her what to do or who to be. Um, she kind of wants the wuxia life 
and we're, we're approaching this idea of the wuxia life from these two different ends of um of that life from the start of it and from the end of it and not necessarily from a romantic viewing of it uh from a very realistic revisionist idea of it uh like you said very much like the unforgiven um and other very revisionist western uh stories that don't romanticize the genre so much as they are explore the humanity within it yeah yeah and in this one isn't like isn't so much the the conversation of what does it mean to take a life and to be a fighter like unforgiven was it's more about um the what does it mean to have ability but no control um versus the other way around um so yeah it's really interesting and yeah like you're saying it's kind of uh, a reflexive look into the wuxia genre from the wuxia genre itself and is it just beautifully pulled off the uh the wuxia aspects of this film um in this film we see uh the flywires which there's actually kind of a uh a, a term for some of these movies called wire foo where basically you know we're having um these, I mean, characters literally just suspended by wires, but they're, the choreography with these wires is amazing. And the way that they're able to just like essentially fly through the scene, but also with a little bit of a grounded sense about the way that they move. Like one of the most stunning parts of the movie uh, that I want to bring up in relation to A Touch of Zen too, but is this fight in this uh, bamboo forest which pretty much every wuxia film after A Touch of Zen that has a bamboo forest scene is referencing A Touch of Zen. Um, but Ang Lee actually mentioned that in his behind-the-scenes video for A Touch of Zen, and he said that in order to make their scene different, uh, they decided to take their fight to the top of the trees. And they do. They go up to the very top layer of um, this bamboo forest on all the thinnest parts of the trees, and... Uh, Limu Bai and uh, Jen Yu are standing on these branches as they're swaying in the wind. And Limu Bai is just like just like a leaf on the tree, basically. And it's just gorgeous the way that it's shot. It's almost like they're standing on a pool noodle underwater. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but it kind of it felt real, even though it was so fantastical. Um, and that's kind of the next evolution of these special effects that really help aid these wuxia movies. And that's something that's interesting is like, it's such an old genre, but so much of the uh, landmark films are very modern, like even seventies and there's several in the two thousands. Um, but I think visual effects really are useful to this genre and uh, have to be used in order to sell it. Yeah, I mean, well, if you if you just take a look at again uh, what the genre requires, what the genre can afford, um, afford you story wise and action wise, what you can do, then you need you need something fantastical. You need something put out of the realm of the ordinary. And as the technology that allows us to make um, that out of the ordinary in in films and movies more out of the ordinary you kind of have to pursue it in order to stay stay ahead of the curve um 
And that's just that's just a natural part of the evolution of filmmaking over the years. But it's very interesting to t- look at it through the microcosm of wuxia films, which are so VFX heavy, and see them evolve from jumping on trampolines to fly wires at the top of a bamboo forest to lots of CGI um, and House of Flying Daggers. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about this film, um, just going back to some of the interesting points from the last film, is that this film also deals with the idea of um, of strong female uh, warrior characters, and it it puts this idea much more front and center, and it takes it from three different angles. You have uh, Jade Fox, who is this warrior character who was shunned and became very bitter, and you have Yushu Lin, who is also a warrior, but she is you know, renowned and I don't, I'm not sure how she got trained. I think she was just trained at a different, uh, house that actually took female trainers, but you know, she is our, the, the model of the female, uh, martial arts character. And then we have Jen who's coming up under the training of this bitter character, but has the skill of these other characters. And she is just kind of all over the place and does whatever the heck she wants to do. So, you know, that's really interesting, again, going back to this time period where these roles and especially this idea of uh, Jen Yu, she has this arranged marriage that she's trying to get out of. And then contrasting that with uh, Yushu Lin, who has this love interest with uh, Li Mu Bai, but is kind of a forbidden love interest kind of a thing. And it's just like a lot of much more theme than Dragon Inn, but it's almost like theme driven as opposed to action driven um, with the action thrown in there to accent all of the themes uh, uh, that's going into this. Yeah. All right. But with all of that being said, let's take a flying leap into 2004 and Alex set us up for our last movie. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys know, but I'm a hundred percent positive that Jonathan's been waiting the entire podcast to use the term (laughs) flying leap. Um, but you're welcome. It was, it was a good use of the term. Um, so house of flying daggers from 2004, uh, is actually kind of, you know, it's kind of a smaller scale, uh, uh, we film in just the terms of the scale of, uh, the plot that matters, but there's a lot of plot that doesn't matter outside of it. Anyway, you'll, you'll see what I mean here in just a second. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of extraneous stuff. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, and you think it's going to matter, but then it doesn't, but you don't care that it doesn't matter because of the way they build the sympathy. I'm going to be talking a lot about how we build empathy for characters in this movie, so just just brace yourself for that. Um, but that'll come here in a little while. First, the plot. Um, so we are at the fall of the Tang Dynasty in China, around 859 AD, one of the longest-lasting dynasties in China, and as it falls apart, it's not very, uh, it's not good. It's a bad, bad, bad time to be when empires fall. Um, and there's a bunch of, uh, resistance and rebel groups uh, springing up, uh, different parts of power, uh, springing up, um, all over the country and one of the biggest and one of the scariest is the house of flying daggers um and if you can just imagine how they got that name um it's pretty obvious it's used throughout the movie they throw daggers there's a lot of them and they throw them in a really fancy wuxia way with lots of fancy cgi um and we'll get into that Um, curve the bullet yeah exactly 
exactly. If anyone remembers that movie, um, <laughs> they just remember that line. Or they that just phrase. remember that line. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so so this House of Flying Daggers, their leader has just been assassinated, um, but the two police officers in the area, Leo and Jin, um, who are best buddies. And it's going to be a best buddy cop drama. Just kidding. Um, are ordered to kill the new leader of the group within 10 days, which if that's not a deadline, wow. Okay, so <laughs> they, they have their task and they kind of go to work at it. Uh, they they have a lead. There's this blind girl at a local um, pleasure house. It's not, it's somewhere, it's not quite a brothel. It's like almost a brothel. It's kind of between um, a strip club and a brothel. Yeah, yeah. Um, no touching, um, just very flowy sleeves, just, just lots of dancing and entertainment and like companionship. It's, it's very hard to describe unless you watch it, but if you watch it, it makes sense. Anyway, um, Jin goes there and gets drunk and is trying to suss out who this blind girl is. Um, and then Leo storms in and is... Uh, and, and shoes Jin away and has this showdown with the blind girl where there's drums and there's pebbles being thrown and there's long flowing sleeves. It's a beautiful scene. It's very rhythmic. Uh, the editing is wonderful. The use of slow-mo to show the stunts and the CGI in all its glory is wonderful. Um, <clears throat> but uh, at the end of it, Leo arrests her um, and takes her in uh, because she's suspected of being the previous leader's uh, daughter. And so that night, Jin, all of a sudden, breaks her out of prison. He uh, assaults the prison, breaks her out, uh, and is says he's a rebel sympathizer. Hint, hint, he is not. Um, and they, they run away, supposedly, to the Flying Daggers headquarters. The plan at this point is uh, for Jin to get to pretend to be a rebel sympathizer and get May to take him to the headquarters of the Flying Daggers. Leo's going to trail behind, and then they'll know where the Flying Daggers are. Um, but along the way, things get complicated because May and Jin fall in love because this is a movie and we can't have um, two... Uh, uh, or we can't have two people who are attracted to each other not fall in love. So it happens. They... Um, but of course they're being attacked uh, by Leo's group because a lot of his men and then eventually the military, which gets wrapped up into this chase as well, are convinced that Jin is actually a bad guy. They don't know that he's posing. So they are they're chasing them and fighting them. There's a bunch of really brilliant fight scenes with them. There's this lovely one with shields that I just really, really love. Always makes me think of a turtle for whatever reason, but it's great. Um... <clears throat> They keep fighting fighting and running. Eventually, they get saved by the flying daggers just when you think they're about to be caught by the bad guys, the military police. Um, and then once they're at the uh, flying daggers, Jin has the uh, has a lot of stuff revealed to him really quickly. And the first thing's first that May isn't blind. Uh, she isn't the blind leader of the former... The, the blind daughter of the former leader of the flying daggers. Um... She is an agent of the Flying Daggers who is trying um, to, to lead them off the trail of the Flying Daggers. Um, okay, so real quick, we're going to kind of spoil the, a bunch of stuff in this movie. There are a lot of kind of plot reveals and stuff, but I think it's okay for this movie because it's kind of like 
the idea of an epic poem where you know this story, but you kind of still go along with it because of its poeticism and not because of these plot twists and stuff, even though they are kind of surprising the first time you watch them. But it's kind of like the idea of this legend that you're just watching and it's so beautifully done that I don't think it takes anything away to kind of talk about it here. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you know, I feel like I'm on a roll. Um, <laughs> it's it's hard to get going on these plots, guys, and do it succinctly. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so once he once Jin and May are at the headquarters of the Flying Daggers, Jin has a lot of stuff revealed to him. The first thing is that May is um, the not the blind daughter of the former leader of the Flying Daggers. She's an agent of the Flying Daggers who is completely. Um, with sight, um, and has been she's playing a decoy. Yeah, she's been uh, playing him the entire time, um, and uh, he Jin is now going to be executed. And then we, uh, it's revealed to the audience, not uh, Jin yet, but just the audience, that um, Leo is actually a Flying Daggers member and has been the entire time. It's like triple agent, <laughs> double and triple agents up in here, man. Um, and not only that, but Leo has been engaged to May for three years. They haven't seen each other in three years because they've both been like in deep undercover uh, jobs. But uh, the reunion does not go well. Um, May has actually fallen in love with Jin, um, despite all of the political uh, misgivings and complications surrounding their um, love. And uh, kind of, re- or well, doesn't kind of, rejects Leo, who then proceeds to try to rape her, and is then attacked uh, by, or May is saved by another member of the fl- Flying Daggers, um, and Leo is kind of Presumably the him. actual leader. Yeah, we, we're given to believe that she's the one in charge. She really seems like the one in charge. Um, but anyway, Leo runs away. Um, May is then given the task of executing um, Jin, which, holy hell, that's rough. Um, but instead of executing him, she cuts him loose and lets him run away. Um, she asks, or he asks her to run away with him, um, but she refuses. And then, like, you know, what, all of, like, 30 minutes later, uh, she's like, no, I do want to go with him. And then she goes after him. Leo follows as well and ambushes Jin. Um, then there's the big fight where Jin and Leo fight. Um, and May fights as well. Uh, but she, she gets kind of, uh, knocked out fairly early in the battle by a dagger. Um, anyway, Jin and Leo are fighting, but they're, they're pretty evenly matched. And it's a very, epic battle a random ass blizzard shows up and snows really freaking <laughs> fast all over everything so we have this nice white layer uh, the magic applies to weather in this movie yes it does presumably at the same time as we're led to believe from what we see uh the military assaults the house of the flying daggers but we never really get to see the end of that fight and at this point we're not really invested in the House of the Flying Daggers. We're never really given any sympathy for the House of Flying Daggers. Just kind of is a thing. And we don't really care about the Tang Empire either. That just kind of is a thing in the background that uh, has started our characters on this journey to this fight that we now find them on. Um, So in this last fight, like all of this emotional and romantic tension has come to a head and Leo has thrown a dagger in to May and... Uh, Jin is like, don't take that dagger out or you will bleed to death. Um, 
and Leo is about to throw a dagger at Jin, and he makes the motion, and May takes her dagger out and throws it to block it, but it was a bluff, and there's only like a drop of blood that was kind of flicked from his dagger, and he faked it, and May dies. And so then Jin and Leo are left to battle it out on their own. But neither one really dies. Um, Jin is just kind of left uh, crying over May's body while Leo kind of stumble runs away. And then we never really find out what happens with the military in the house. And no one cares. <laughs> right. It's just everything went wrong and uh, it's very tragic. And that's kind of the one of the points is that it's it's a. Uh, Kind of like you said, Alex, it's, it's a tragic ballad almost. It's like a this whole love triangle and stuff goes wrong. People die from it. It's almost Shakespearean in a way, and it just leaves you sad. And yeah. like, you don't even know. Like Probably the House of Flying Daggers all got killed. You don't care. All the characters that we care about ended up dead or sad. Yeah, right. They all ended up dead or sad. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're right. They are... Um, they are legendary characters in a way. Um, and that's what I meant when I was talking about the scope of this movie. Even though we have this big conflict between the Tang Empire and... Um, or and actually, rebels. I realize that I've been saying that terribly wrong. It's the Tong Empire. Saying the Tang Empire makes it sound like it's a popular drink from the 1980s. Um, <laughs> it's okay. We've also been saying Leo, and I feel like that's a very Western Yeah, no, I know it's not right. I know it's like... The, the E and the O are separated. It's like Leo and not or Leo. Le- Leo. But I keep saying Leo, and I'm trying not to say Leo. Um, anyway, but but yeah, the, the scope is uh, we ha- we've got all this background stuff going on, but we, we don't, we're not interested in that. That's just the backdrop. We are interested in really just three characters and a couple other really minor characters who don't even have to have names. And in that way... It, uh, it it kind of contains this legendary formula that you see in like a Greek myth where you only have a few characters who really do anything and only a few characters that whose names you need to know. And that makes it really easy to retell a story uh, and really make it tragic um, <clears throat> with all this backstabbing and secret identities and, and whatnot going on uh, that makes it memorable. And the, the backdrop just makes it fantastical and helps make it even more legendary, um, even more fantastical, as opposed to a more grounded version of a love triangle gone terribly wrong. Right. Um, And as far as getting more fantastical, this film brings even more visual effects into the mix because we have daggers that are actually like, you know, flying all over the place in these crazy spirals and uh, being directed in certain ways. And so we've got some actual... Um, you know, computer generated effects going on. Uh, also computer generated beans, anybody? Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's, there's some really interesting things, uh, that you're able to do with these knives. And again, it's about the world building because you can't sell these knives in like anything <laughs> else. Uh, it has to be wuxia and, uh, You've also got the flying going on. We've got another bamboo fight scene, which is pretty amazing. Uh, there's just really like crazy, yeah, crazy things that happen in this fight scene. I don't know who booby like trapped tree the. En- it's really great. Yeah, and I don't know who booby trapped the entire forest, but uh, 
It's yeah, no, crazy. that fascinated me. I was like, that was really intricate. How did they set that up that fast <laughs> and get it in the right spot? Like, anyway. Yeah. But that's, again, while you're watching it, that's not what's popping in your head. You, you think about that like an hour after the movie's over and you're like, that didn't make sense. But you, it already made its impression, so you're good. Um, <clears throat> one thing I do want to talk about, and I think I already mentioned this, is um, is how do we we create and then take away uh, empathy for characters? Because there's a lot of, and this is an interesting movie to talk about it and and look about and look at that uh, in, and it's pre- it's something that's present in all movies, but really interesting in this film in particular, um, just because we have all of these character reveals that happen over like what really is at the end of the day a fairly simple plot it's a love triangle um gone terribly wrong but the way we get to that end point is complicated and the reveals change how we feel about the characters over the course of the film and i don't think any of the reveals are terribly terribly shocking um right i had a feeling from the get-go that one of these two guys worked for the house of the flying daggers um I the didn't think about that, that so much, but from the instant that uh, Leo was like, don't catch actual feelings for her, man, uh, or else our whole plot is ruined. I was like, OK, so he's going to catch feelings. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> oh, that was really obvious. Yeah, that was a given. That had to happen, even just by movie rules. Like, you know, if you if you if you get your two leads in one spot, like they're going to fall in love. That That's what right. happens. Um, <clears throat> but anyway. So let's let's get into some of these empathy reveals, and I want to start with uh, my favorite one of the entire uh, movie, just because it swings so dramatically. Um, is the confrontation scene between Leo and um, May, where we find out that Leo has been engaged to May for like three years, and now he feels betrayed all of a sudden. Um, the f- well, the first part of it is that uh, Leo is confirmed to be working for the House of Flying Daggers. So that's a reveal. Um, Which shifts our sympathy to him because before he was um, he was going after May, who we've established as a protagonist. So he is an antagonist until we learn that he's really a protagonist. So mm-hmm. we've done one shift already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we we get to the, the reveal that they are engaged or were engaged at one point at least like three years ago um and then that's just shocking that scrambles your feelings more than anything else Mm -hmm. um especially if you're a pro the relationship that you've been watching develop and feel empathy for for the entire film up to this point um and then there's there's the talk in exchange that was inevitable where they talk about how May has fallen in love with Jin. And all through that exchange, you see how hurt and betrayed uh, Leo is that May has suddenly fallen in love with Jin. And you feel all the sympathy for him um, and all this empathy build up for him because you're like, man, this poor guy. Like, yeah. he was engaged to this woman for three years and suddenly she just dumped him. Um, and May has been, like, really vague, like, not really saying anything he's having to imply everything from her silence which kind of turned me off from may uh at this point because if she would just talk about things it would solve problems well that's that's the thing about all movies jonathan and it's something (laughs) that all of our listeners should really take to heart and anybody who studies film should really take to heart um is if people talked about their problems we wouldn't have movies (laughs) right (laughs) 
right? It solves This was just a really things. blatant uh, good, example good communication of her. is like the key to 90% of life. Um, but if people were good at it, we wouldn't have conflict. We need conflict for movies. Um, but That's anyway, true. Back but there to, was no back, obs- obscuration in this instance. It was just her just like not saying words. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's she's not being forthcoming. She's not making herself empathetic at that moment. She's not trying to build any sympathy either with the audience or with uh, Leo. She's she's very cold. She's very silent. Um, and then we get to this this point where um, they they've they fought, and now Leo tries to. Uh, essentially force himself on her, tries to rape her. And at that point, then our sympathy flips right back. Um, Even though we still think that, uh, you know, may had done him wrong leading up to it, you know, there's, there's no, there's no excuse for attempted rape. He's become evil in the eyes of the audience at that point. He's, he's the bad guy now. Um, And just flips so fast (laughs) over, he, yeah, he, it just flipped so fast over the course of that scene and it flipped back and forth and back and forth. Um, and and part of how you flip an audience is knowing that audience, what will uh, make an audience sympathetic or empathetic towards a person and what won't. Um, and this movie does a wonderful job of it. Of course, I, I have to point this out. And again, I'm going to pull a movie in that isn't related uh, directly to any of the movies we talked about this week, but does have a good example of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about you got to know your audience when you're dealing with empathy. Um, but Rebel Without a Cause starts out with one of the side characters admitting that he he shot a puppy. He shot a puppy. Um, and maybe in 1950, uh, casually murdering, murdering a puppy was like seen as bad, but not like, oh my gosh, you're the spawn of the devil. But nowadays, you would be considered the spawn of the devil. There would be no way to have empathy for a character who started off the movie having shot a puppy. Um, <clears throat> and of course, House of Flying Daggers doesn't deal with shot puppies. But if you think about it, all of the empathetic turns that we have are all empathetic turns that the audience agrees with. Um, and that's what makes them work. We all agree that rape is bad. So that turn works. We all know that for whatever, what, despite the reason, having suddenly uh, cheated on your fiancé of three years is a bad thing to do. It, it is not good. So we all, that, all of those empathetic turns work. Yeah, and you know, just to throw in the other angle of this uh, love triangle, we have Jin, who starts off being the deceiver. He is uh, falsely building a bond with May. And so we're kind of, you know, he's on the the antagonist side. We kind of assume that he's going to come around by the end. But, you know, after all of this stuff has happened, we're like solidly on Jin's side by the end of this movie. And even to the point where if at the beginning of the movie, we thought that we were just... uh, going to finish the movie by shipping May and Jen, and then they would go off and live this happy life. By the end of the movie, we're really not even on May's side because she's so fickle. And uh, again, with the whole, uh, 
you know, Jin is like trying to preserve her life and saying, don't take the dagger out or you'll bleed to death. And she's just like, I can't deal with this anymore. So she's like intentionally, um, you know, let herself die because of this whole conflict. And Jin is like scrambling by the end to preserve anything that he can from this relationship. Uh, and he's kind of the only one trying. So by the end, we're only on one side uh, and maybe on May's side, depending on where you're coming from. But uh, yeah, these these sympathy shifts change so much uh, to the point where the antagonist at the beginning of the film um, becomes, well, two of the antagonists, one of them becomes the protagonist and the other one becomes like sincerely the antagonist and the other one is somewhere in this gray area. Yeah, so it's complex. Yeah. I could, but at you the could same time, that. simple because we only have three characters. Right. And it's just beautifully shot, like the way that these landscapes are done. Again, just to bring it back to the visuals, because so much of Wusha relies on visuals, you know? It really does. It really does. Okay, so I wanted to, uh, let's let's slide into overall notes for this, but I wanted uh, to talk about some of the, the visual aspects that we see in, uh, in Wusha films over and over again. And I think a lot of it has to do with a lot of the, uh, with precedence that King Hu himself set, um, just because he was he played such a big role into reinvigorating the genre in the modern era. Um, bamboo forests, flying yeah, souls. So, so yeah, always seeing bamboo forests, always seeing flying uh, people, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but even going down to like literally just a cinema uh, cinematographer's you know point of view, the uh, the use of uh, of fog of atmospheric haze in the films king who i think does the best job of it but i see it in crouching tiger as well i see it in house of flying daggers as well um where you you fill up these spaces including the bamboo forest with fog so that you have these just just these gorgeous light shafts form yeah uh throughout the air um and these are not spaces that typically have a lot of fog and if they did it wouldn't be the right fog to get um to get those light shafts in. So we are, we are looking at definitely looking at a creative choice on the part of, uh, the, um, the cinematographer, the director, um, all of these people on the, on the film, uh, to make it look that way. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about just because I, I do this for a living is color. Um, but these films tend to be color coded in a way. Um, and, Dragon Inn is a really good example of it. We're introduced to our bad guys, the secret police, and they're all in uniforms. Um, the, for whatever reason, there's like two kinds of secret police. Um, maybe just to have some different colors mixed in there, but none of the good guys wear the same colors that the bad guys wear. Um, and for very good reason. A lot of times that's done really subtly in a lot of modern films, but uh, Wuxia films are very aggressive with how they do that. Yeah. Um, and especially, especially since House we're using solid Daggers. colored robes, especially yes. in Dragon Inn. Yes, yes. They're solid color robes. They're not patterned. It's not like they're wearing plaid um, or anything right. like that. Um, and especially once you get to House of Flying Daggers, oh my gosh, The how, the how once we get to literally the House of Flying Daggers and the House of Flying Daggers, um, it's so green. Yeah. Everyone wears so much green. Um, and it kind of blends into this bamboo forest that they're in. Um, 
and all of the the members of the House of the Flying Daggers, um, which I'm suddenly realizing is a very laborious thing to call your secret organization. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that just is drenched in green is the uh, the seasons kind of change almost metaphorically with the uh, the characters. So we start in a very warm, uh, probably can assume it's like a summer or spring. And then we move, and by the time that uh, May has to take Jen out and kill him, presumably it's fall, so things are going, uh, are starting to die. And then the very last fight scene, like you said, basically this blizzard comes out of nowhere, so we're in a very cold and wintry setting. But as these seasons change, we're able to change the color palette with every scene, and it's just really gorgeous and brilliantly done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. It's totally out of place. And in, in if you're going for any sort of realism there, because if you look at the plot of House of Flying Daggers, it does not it it moves too fast for the seasons to have actually changed. Yeah, probably takes like, a week. Yeah, maybe a week even to for them to do what they're doing. Um, but they they just do it because we're in the time of legends and you can uh you can get away with that stuff when you're essentially telling a myth yeah yeah one of the other things i wanted to mention about house of flying daggers and the the poeticism is there's even a structural poeticism in certain points as far as um at one point jinn and may uh kind of break up and go two different ways after an argument and we see may kind of traveling along and Jin travels for a little bit and then he stops and he thinks for a little bit and then he turns around and follows her. But these two scenes are kind of intercut. Almost, I wouldn't call it an actual montage because this has a very uh, specific uh, kind of narrative purpose as opposed to just a transition. Um, and then that is repeated again at the end where she lets Jin go and he's leaving and then she tries to leave and then she decides to turn around and come back so there are a couple things like that where just in the structure of the editing there is this repetition and this poeticism uh aside from just kind of the story aspects yeah yeah and i think you mentioned to me this week jonathan that um even the camera work is uh very poetic it's not um it doesn't echo the shaky cam action uh, genres that we are um, that we're used to today on TV um, or in Jason Bourne movies. It's it's planned, it's set up, it's clear, it's concise, and the camera kind of glides through these action scenes with the smoothness yeah. that you don't typically see in action scenes which involve guns. Um, again, I'm I'm coming back to my vendetta against cinema cinematographic guns. Yes. Well, thankfully, all of these take place, I think, before um, the popularization of guns in China. Um, but yeah, the camera glides and flies through the frame just as much as any of the characters do. And I think Ang Lee is the best of the three at this as far as incorporating the camera and the flying um, just in this choreographic dance uh, of the way that all of these things flow together. Um, just the way that they float over the rooftops or, uh, again, in the bamboo forest or anything like that is just so smooth and so perfectly um, planned and executed. And it doesn't leave any room for this kind of ambiguity uh, like, we, like we've talked about before with very um, shaky cam fight scenes. 
uh, and stuff like that. This is this is as zen as the uh, as the characters are are discussing. All right, this is something we've uh, we've kind of already talked about a little bit, but these are essentially legends and myths, and um, we've mentioned that before. But um, but these are not small stories; these are not down to earth stories in any way, shape, or form. They are completely fantastical in the way they are told, um, and they they find points of grounding to um to really bring them home for instance house of flying daggers kind of relies on the empathy angle to really ground you in um crouching tiger hidden dragon kind of relies on the complexity of their characters and the fact that they're not in their prime um to to kind of ground the film uh and in terms of dragon in uh it's well to its benefit actually it's so old that it has to rely on these completely practical VFX um, and no flywires even, that it, it feels more grounded than your modern-day CGI fanfares. Um, but besides those points of contact with the ground, the rest, of these, the rest of these films are completely up in the air. They're a mile high into the legend stratosphere. Um, completely fantastical. And that's really their appeal. Um, and and we've talked about this throughout the entire podcast, but if you know the appeal of your genre, that's really what you go for when you try to make um, one of those films. Even when you're making a meta commentary on that genre, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, you are still at your core making something that has the appeal of that genre. Um, And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon certainly delivers on the legendary fights. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to compare them to genres that we're more familiar with and that we've talked about on the podcast before because the fact that all of these films and, you know, just by definition, the genre were following um, warriors and fighters and that kind of just automatically puts it in the category of samurai films and uh, Western gunslinger films, but it's from a very different... um, culture and again putting that fantasy spin on it but a lot of times the the legendary and the story aspects uh really kind of fall into these other categories that we already have a handle on so they're they're still pretty accessible yeah yeah i mean obviously if you go too far off of the um off of the path into completely crazy surrealist um if even just beyond surrealist just completely disconnected fantasy it's going to be hard to find um an audience who can connect with what you're doing um that and that's not to say that there's not movies out there that exist like that but there's not movies out there that exist like that that have a wide appeal yeah or a but lasting there is appeal. there is a range and again it's about the way that you um set your parameters and you introduce the audience to what you're doing from the beginning because one of the other things that i was thinking about this week is um even aside from samurai and western films uh but you think of indian films like bahubali which was about a warrior it has just about as much fantastical fighting and almost flying as uh these wuxia films and it has musical numbers and it it just makes it all seem like it fits so there's this huge range um of things that you can get away with and make the audience believe but you have to introduce it in a plausible way uh 
and you know these wuxia films all fall into this category that has these parameters and as long as they stay within those parameters we will buy whatever you throw at us as long as it's not a dagger <laughs> yeah hopefully all right let's talk about some of the influences that wuxia's had on other films films that you might even call pseudo wuxia or wuxia in and of themselves um, over the course of the past couple decades as Wuxia has become even more popular in the West, pretty much ever since the rise of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And almost right on the heels of that, maybe exactly on the heels of that, I can't remember its least release date, is The Matrix um, from the early 2000s, which has crazy flying fight scenes, literally dojo scenes. Um, it pulls heavily, heavily from Wuxia films. Yeah, the interesting thing, The Matrix is actually 99, so it's actually the year before Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but it does come from this uh, this history and, you know, King Who and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just, it, it explains it away in a way that doesn't feel force-fed. Like, it puts it in this science fiction uh, context and throws so much other stuff at us that the wuxia seems like the least fantastical element of everything else. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and of course, there's other films, um, especially from people who we're, who are known to have watched a lot of um, foreign martial arts films um, in their youth, like uh, Quentin Tarantino, um, like Kill Bill, uh, which, which also, I should say, does draw very heavily from uh, Japanese uh, action sword fighting films, but it does also draw from uh, wuxia films as well there's there's kind of a blend of the two uh yeah kill bill draws from everything <laughs> yeah it does it really it really does although if you watch lady snowblood it, you'll you'll have a hard time saying that kill bill isn't like the american lady snowblood right but there are definitely like scenes that are almost straight out of wuxia films where characters are standing on a sword that another character is holding up um that that is straight wuxia <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is really funny because that is in the middle of a scene that is pulled straight from like Lady Snowblood. Right. So Which yeah. does not have like the sword standing bit in it if you go back to the Japanese film. So interesting blend. Um, yeah, again, about setting your parameters, Quentin Tarantino basically sets up his Kill Bill movies as this huge homage to cinema and all the different genres. And so... You know, everything that he puts in there, as fantastical as it is, it's like, oh, okay, I know where this is coming from. Okay, I know where this is coming from. And so, again, he makes his parameters and he makes it work. Right, right. And, of course, we already mentioned, but there's the Kung Fu Panda series that's uh, brought Wuxia to a whole generation of American children. <laughs> yes, in the form of a panda. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, Jonathan, so what are we going to talk about the next time on the Filmings Podcast? Yeah, so next time we'll be heading back to America and looking at a very modern director who's still around and working, uh, and that is Ridley Scott. So we're going to start by talking about uh, Blade Runner from 1984, and we'll be looking at the final cut, uh, quote-unquote, of that film, and I'm sure we'll talk about all the different releases uh, that that film has had since it was originally released. Uh, and then we look at Gladiator from 2000, and the next year, uh, Black Hawk Down from 2001. Uh, so Ridley Scott has done so many different kinds of movies that uh, should be great to talk about. Right. It should be uh, fascinating to talk about a director who has worn so many hats um, in so many different genres. 
and covered so much ground with his uh, um, his collection of films that he has made. But that is about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. The, the Popularization of Guns in China, a dissertation by Jonathan Satchel. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's going to be my, uh, my thesis for my Filmlings class. Um, sign up for your Filmlings class today. When do I get um, tenure? <laughs> do I get benefits yet? <laughs>